Thank you for joining the worship services of Shoto, Brady, and Dutton United Methodist Churches. I'm Pastor Julie King, and I'm so grateful for digital technology that allows you to join us from wherever you are in the world. You can join us every week by clicking the links on our Facebook at facebook.com shotoumc or on our website at umshoto.net. If you like what we are doing and would like to financially support us in ministry, you can find more contact information on our website, and again, that's umshoto.net. We're so grateful that you are joining us. This week for our scripture reading, we're going to do it a little bit different because it is such a short scripture reading. And as you know, we are beginning this new sermon series over the Ten Commandments, and we all learn and remember things differently. So some of us learn very well from reading and speaking aloud, and I hope that this will help us to remember this first commandment. If you would join me in reading the scripture, it comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3, and it's up here on the screen or also in your bulletin. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to sit this book up here so that you guys can all look at it and remember what it is. If you are interested in purchasing the book, let me know and we would be happy to send you the link to order it or order several and you guys can reimburse the church however. But this sermon series that I'm doing is based off of this book by Reverend Adam Hamilton, who's the senior pastor at Church of the Resurrection, and it's called Words of Life. I love this study so far. It goes very, very deep into each of the new or each of the Ten Commandments. And I feel like it really does open our eyes and give us a very new perspective. The book, of course, goes much deeper into anything that I could fit into a sermon each week, and that's why I'm inviting all of you to purchase it if you would like to. But I will do my best to summarize what Hamilton talks about, as well as adding my own thinking into this each week. Of course, this week we're going to really take a deep look at this first commandment. Now, many of you might be among a very popular group of thinkers and thinking that the Ten Commandments were written a very long time ago. They're ancient, and they were written for ancient people, and they don't really apply to us very much today. At face value, that statement is generally correct. However, I really believe that if we look a lot deeper into the commandments, if we really look at a deep perspective of the historic context during the time they were written, as well as the way that Jesus and the apostles use these commandments and talk to us about them in the gospels, I think that we will have a very good understanding of how they really do relate to us today. Jesus, in all of his teachings, 
had a very good way of being able to look past the rules of these Ten Commandments and to find the heart of the people that these commandments were written for. Not just the Israelites of that time so long ago, but for each one of us. And I love that about Jesus' teachings. In every one of the commandments, for every thou shalt not, there's really an underlying thou shalt that belongs to it. It provides a way for us that we are to live our lives to be more godlike, a way that we can move forward in our lives and be Christ-like. So before we get to that point, I want to take us back a long way, several thousand years, and help us to understand what was going on at that time. Give us a little bit of the historical context during the time that this was written. Now, you got this a little bit a couple of weeks ago when I introduced this, and if you weren't here that Sunday, it is still available on our YouTube channel. You can go back two weeks ago and get kind of that introduction to this. But where I want us to start thinking about this today is around the year 1500 BC. During that time, there was a famine that was going on. The famine had led Israel and his children and grandchildren to a new place in search for food. They and tens of thousands of other Semitic people migrated to Egypt's lush Nile Delta. This area was about five million acres of very fertile land. It was truly a new haven for them where they were able to get food that they were so desperately seeking. And for those of you as we're going through this that might be wondering who somatic people are, it's simply a way that we term people of that time that spoke an ancient language. So particularly in this context, we're talking about those who spoke Arabic, Arabic and Hebrew. So all of these people had migrated to Egypt. And as they got there, the population began to grow and grow. And they essentially built a nation within a nation. So you have Egypt as the large nation. And within that, you have the smaller population of these immigrants that had come in. Time continues on and more immigrants end up moving to the area. There was another group of people. These were also of somatic origin. But the Egyptians called them Hyksos, which in essence meant that they were foreign rulers. This group of people who came in, came in with the mindset that they were going to take over those original immigrants and rule them. And they did so successfully. They also ended up taking over parts of the other lands of Egypt. And so they were ruling over a very large general area here. Now, eventually, the Egyptian pharaohs began growing and their reign grew stronger and stronger. And these people ended up being expelled out. It's just so that you're following the timeline. So the original migration began about 1800 BC and it's now about 1550 BC. So several hundred years have gone by. Egypt is now beginning to take over and control very powerful again. And as these foreign rulers, the Semitics that had come in and ruled, were expelled out, 
many of the original foreigners remained. And the pharaohs and the rulers of Egypt at that time, as we all know, made them slaves. As this time period goes on, the slavery continues for several generations, many, many generations. And among the many ways that the slaves were used, they were used to make millions and millions of bricks out of mud, and then they were used to build these massive building projects for the new kingdom of pharaohs. Now, a common question or thought that many people have when we were thinking of ancient Egypt and the wonderful building that was happening there is people begin to wonder then, was it the Israelites that built the Egyptian pyramids? The answer to that is no. The pyramids actually predate several hundred years prior to when the Israelites were there. So it was not them who built the Egyptian pyramids. However, they did build many, many of the temples, the cities, and the walls that you can still find at several of the ancient archaeological sites. One of them that is famous that many of you might be familiar with is the magnificent Luxor Temple. Have any of you heard of it? So that was among some of the building that these Israelite slaves were a part of. Now, what else was happening at this time? The biblical stories remind us at this time that there was an Israelite infant who was born, and his mom wanted to save him. So she makes this waterproof basket, and she puts him in the river, and he floats downstream, and one of the Pharaoh's daughters rescues this little baby. Of course, we know that it's Moses. She ends up adopting Moses, and she raises him like one of her own Moses would have absolutely grown up being educated like an Egyptian prince. He would have learned the Egyptian religion, the law, their philosophies. And you can read, of course, about Moses' life and his story in Exodus, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that today because that's another message for another day. What we do know, though, is about the time that Moses was 40 years old, he had apparently become aware of his Israel, Israelite heritage. And so he goes out one day and he ob he's observing what is going on around there. And he sees the mistreatment of the Israelite people. He gets mad, very mad, and he ends up killing one of the task makers. Because of this, are you okay? Okay, glad you're okay back there. We don't have temples falling in the background. <laughs> anyway, so around the time that Moses is 40-ish years old, he goes out and he sees the oppression happening. It angers him. He kills one of the task makers and he gets caught. And so he flees. Moses is gone for about another 40 years. So now he's about an 80-year-old man. And that's when the story of the burning bush happens. This burning bush comes, Moses is before it, and God appears to Moses, and he says, Hey, Moses, I got some big things for you to do. You're going to lead my people. And Moses doubts himself, as many of us do when God calls us to do something so big. Moses does not find himself capable of doing it, but of course we know the story. God works through him, and he goes back to Egypt, and the ten plagues happen, and eventually he does free the Israelite people. That kind of brings us back to where we were a couple weeks ago. 
So they've set up this huge base camp at the base of Mount Sinai. And like I said, if you haven't watched the historical context of a couple weeks ago, back, go back and do so. Because you'll learn about how Moses had to go up and down this big mountain. And it was a big deal. And that's where we end up today with God speaking not only to Moses, but also to the Israelites. They can hear him as he gives the commandments. This first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. This is pretty important for us to think about. For those people, the Israelites at that time, they had been living under the Egyptian rule for hundreds and hundreds of years. They may not have had the ability to be educated and grow up among the, or the pharaohs and have the knowledge that Moses had of what the Egyptians believed, but they certainly would have been accustomed to these beliefs. They were very aware of the hundreds of Egyptian gods, possibly even thousands of Egyptian gods. And this was the life, the reign that they had lived under for a very long time. So for these people, Moses had told them about his encounter with God in the burning bush, but it had been hundreds of years since their ancestors, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, had talked about God, this one God. Some of them may not have even really been familiar with the God of their ancestors, so as the Lord speaks that day and says, I am the Lord of your, your God. I am the same one that appeared to Moses that day in the burning bush and said, I am who I am. This was a big thing for them. I also want to point out that God did not announce to them there are no other gods. He did not throw them you know, completely astray from what they were around. The cultural norm was still very much but the Lord spoke boldly, and he was strong in what he said. And he said, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Something that is interesting, just as a little side note, on the way that this was written down, is if you go back to the Hebrew Bible, the way that Lord would have been written in this context would have been in Hebrew, and it would have been capital Y, capital H, capital W, capital H. If you look through the Hebrew Bible, you'll see that a lot, and often. We typically pronounce it Yahweh. Some other people pronounce it Jehovah. You can see how some of the other religions are all starting to align now from this historical context. Yahweh is used more than 6,400 times in the Old Testament. It is a sacred word, a sacred name of God. In fact, it's so sacred that in the modern Jewish tradition, they will not even use the word Yahweh, hence the reason that the word Lord now replaces it in the Hebrew Bible. This first commandment was a very big deal. It was more than just having other gods. It was a huge proclamation 
by the Israel people to understand this commandment. To me, it was a way that they had something tangible. They had the actual voice of God speaking to them. And that very much influenced who we became eventually as what we now know as Christian people. And that part of our history and our ancestors very much played who we are and how we understand God today. Now, that's a lot of information. (laughs) If any of you are sitting there thinking, whoa, and maybe having some aha moments along the way, that's kind of what I'm going for. I'm hoping to get you thinking, but what you might not be thinking quite yet is that this still doesn't really say how it affects us today or how this matters a whole lot to us today. One thing that Adam Hamilton talks about in his book is that when God said, I am the Lord your God, he was saying to them essentially that I am the sustainer of all things. I am the source of all things. Everything is in existence because of me, and I, as the Lord, am existence itself. That is a big statement. And not only did God say that to the people, but he told them, I am your God. You are my chosen people, and I love you. That point of love begins right there, and the people began to understand how incredibly loved they are by God. This goes on farther and farther to where we get to today. And today, generally speaking, we all pretty well have an understanding that there is one God. We believe in God. We have a lot of names for God. We might call him Abba. We might call him Father. Some of us might call him Yahweh. We call him Creator. Sustainer is often a word that is used for God. But generally speaking, we're not fighting, you know, the concept of Egyptian gods or Greek gods or Roman gods. We generally believe that there is one God, especially for those of us that are here because we've been in the Christian denomination for probably most of our lives, speaking, you know, just generally for all of us. The thing is, though, is in our lives today, there might be other gods that take place. Things that come into our lives and we end up putting God as a secondary. These are things that begin to shape who we are as people. They shape our identity. They begin shaping our values, our actions. Sometimes they can even become the source of our security and our hope. By this definition, Adam Hamilton makes an interesting point here. He says that all of these other things that come into our lives and take place of God, by this definition that we all have something that we find security and hope in, even atheists and agnostics have a God. He says that we all struggle with the first commandment because we are all prone to placing the source and sustainer of our lives as a distant second to these other gods. Now, what does this mean? What are these other gods that we're talking about? What is Adam Hamilton talking about here? Are these all the bad things in our lives, the sins that come before God? Not necessarily. These can also be good things in our lives, things that are very admirable. You might be wondering how that can be. Adam Hamilton uses a fantastic example of this in his book that I would like to share with you. And it was very eye-opening to me. He says that 
He knows several people who in their lives have put physical fitness as their true center. Workouts and nutrition plans are what they eat and they sleep and they drink and they breathe. They devote more money to nutrition and fitness than they do to God. They spend more time reading about fitness and nutritional plans than they do reading scripture. Their devotion to being healthy is very admirable. Of course, the Bible talks about the body being a temple and how we are to care for it. But it is easy for us to allow these good things in our lives to become a God with a small g that takes place of God with a capital G in our lives. So he reminds us that these false gods in our lives can be good and important things. They're not necessarily bad things that come before God. They are important things, but we begin to put too much trust in them. And we begin to expect them to do things in our lives that they cannot do. It is only through God that we can truly find forgiveness and that we can find eternal life and that we can find the true unconditional love and the guidance and the help that we need. All of these other things are good, but when we put them before God, we end up creating this altar on our heart of these things, and they were never meant to be there. I also want to point out that the first commandment does not forbid us to have passions or hobbies or to have interests. We are supposed to enjoy life and we are supposed to have those things. What it does forbid us from doing is worshiping them and for serving them in place of God. Jesus reminds us of this in many of his parables. Throughout a lot of the gospel teachings, Jesus reminds us, tells us multiple stories of ways that things come before God. One of them is in the parable of the sower. We talked about this this summer. If you were here, it might be fresh on your mind. But in the parable of the sower, Jesus reminds us that a lot of people start out very good in their Christian life. They do what they're supposed to do, but then their faith ends up getting choked out, like the wheat that is planted among the thorns. Jesus specifically identifies as such people as those who hear and respond to the good news of the kingdom of God, but the worries of life and the false appeal of wealth choke the word and it ends up bearing no fruit. Another way that Adam Hamilton points out that we can think of how the word or God ends up getting choked out in our life is by ego. And using ego as an acronym, the letters, of course, E-G-O. The way that Adam Hamilton talks about this, and maybe you've heard about this before, is that there's times in our lives that we put ourself before God. And then we do this act of edging God out, the E-G-O. These can be good things, good things like the fitness example. Of course, it's admirable to take care of your body and your health. It's admirable to take care of your finances, to do good things, but God still has to come first. Otherwise, we are putting our self-desires first, and this acronym EGO of edging God out becomes very real in our lives. 
One other reminder of the ways that Jesus talks about, especially the first commandment and great example of the ways that Jesus talks about the first commandment is this story from Mark. This is actually from the 12th chapter of Mark, but Jesus is asked of all of the commandments, what is the most important commandment? Can anyone remember how Jesus responded? It wasn't with some thou shall not or with a prohibition. Instead, Jesus gives us a very positive mandate. And he says that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This commandment, this teaching from Jesus is the key for all of us to keeping the first commandment. When we love God with everything that is within us, we leave no room for those false gods. So I want to leave us thinking about some questions, some pondering questions that maybe will speak differently to each one of you and maybe you'll carry carry them with you throughout the week. But the first of these questions is, if God is, if God is not in the center of your life, then what is at the center of your life? What are the false gods in your life that you are tempted by? In other words, what good things are you very tempted to give your highest allegiance and your deepest trust? What are the things that you might be tempted to seek security in? the things that you might be tempted to devote all of your time and a talents above else. And the final question is, what, if not God, is the greatest influence in shaping your values, your ideals, and your beliefs? As we ponder these questions today and as you hopefully carry them with you throughout this week and you begin thinking what really is at the center of your life, I want you to also think about these words. Adam Hamilton wrote them in his book as he closed out the first chapter on the first commandment, obviously. And he wrote them thinking, if Jesus was here standing before us today, what might Jesus say? This is what Adam Hamilton thinks that Jesus might say to us. My father says to you that I am your God. I have delivered you in the past and I will deliver you in the future. I have loved you as a parent loves a child or as a selfless spouse loves their beloved. I want you to have no other gods before me because when you make something else your God, You are diminished, not enriched. If you love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you seek my kingdom first, you'll find so much more than if you made something else your God. And so I plead with you, have no other gods before me. Amen. Our hymn of reflection this morning is Nearer My God to Thee. If you would like to follow along in your hymnal, it is number 528.